morning. Are you doing doing good this morning? Beautiful day. Beautiful day. Thankful to be here. I hope you're thankful. And uh, just want you to uh, think, is there an ability or a talent that you wish you had? You know, is there ability or talent you wish you had? Maybe turn to your neighbor here real quickly and just say, you know, I wish I had this ability. I wish I had this talent. Okay, okay, okay. All right. What ability or a talent that you wish you had? All right. Now, Aaron gets the best answer. It's the only answer I heard, but it's the best answer. He has the disability of keeping his uh, mouth shut, okay? I wish I could keep, had the ability to keep my mouth shut. When I was younger, I wanted uh, athletic ability along with being a little taller. As you get older, you realize everybody's shrinking. It doesn't really matter anymore. But probably the talent or ability I would want most would be to play an instrument and the ability to sing. And I just make up for those by playing the music louder and singing louder, don't I, Gwen? Yeah. You know what? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. But here's the reality for today's lesson. All of us have different abilities and talents in certain areas. And, and what's interesting is we often take those for granted and wish we had the talents that we don't have. Uh, but the reality is we're all disabled in some area or not. We lack the ability to do certain things we would like to do in life, right, Aaron? And uh, uh, sadly, the older we get, the more dis uh, disabled we become. Uh, my friends Tim, his dad, uh, his, his mom has Alzheimer's. His dad is starting to show his age and a little dementia, and he let his license uh, expire, and now he's having to take the written test, and I think it's about the 10th time. And this guy was a truck driver, and he just can't get the road signs. I mean, a truck driver. You know, it's just disabilities. They increase as you grow older. They hinder us from doing what we'd like to do, or need to do in life or in certain areas. And this third sign in John's Gospel has to do with a disabled man, a man who may have been a paralyzed invalid for most of his life. In fact, the text is going to tell us he was an invalid disabled for 38 years. And back in those days, you lived 40, maybe 50 years. So for the, for the vast majority of this man's life, he had this disability. And, and it's a pretty severe disability in a culture and age when you don't have tech, high-tech wheelchairs, you don't have all the, the helps that we have. And it was a very difficult life. But remember, as we look at this, a sign has significance. It's a miracle with a message. It's a wonder that has a word from God with it. It's a power demonstrated but for a purpose. And the deeper spiritual significance becomes especially clear in this miracle of healing the disabled man without any hope. So I want you to turn your Bibles, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And let's, uh, let's, read, uh, re let's read this together. So follow along. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, okay, that refers to the second sign that we just studied last week. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick 
blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. Now, notice in a lot of your Bibles, this will be in brackets, or it may not even be there. It might be just in a marginal note. But here's what it says. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there. Now, here's where the original text picks up again. A man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, yeah, 38 years, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, or Master, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. And then there's this ominous observation. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. That was considered work. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a, while there was a crowd in that place. Now, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing th these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, we're going to see in this passage that all of us are disabled in a very significant way, in a way that prevents us not just from keeping our mouth shut, but prevents us from living a life that is holy before God. You see, like the disabled man by the pool, we're not able to heal our own souls. We're not able to save ourselves. And there's no one else that can do for us what we need concerning our disability due to our sin nature. And that and, and, and that disability causes us to fall short of God and what He wants, and it, it, it prevents us from living holy before Him, and it causes us to be worthy of His eternal judgment and wrath. And so what becomes clear in this passage, and I think I have it there in your notes, is, look, we need a miracle when we lack the ability to save ourselves or live holy before God. Now, if you're going to understand this sign and this lesson, there's some background that we have to do. And really, the first five verses gives us that background. So let's take a look at it. Look at verse 1. When did this miracle occur? This is very significant. It occurred after these things. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, after these things, unspecified time, 
But it's after this second sign that we just studied that occurred in Cana of Galilee. And remember that second sign last week was about this. Resisting the temptation in desperate times to settle for sign faith rather than real saving faith. Now, that's going to be important. We're going to see that in this miracle, the disabled man seems to fail the test that the royal official passed last week. The royal official ultimately came to saving faith after having signed faith. But this guy apparently doesn't have any faith at all, and he certainly... In, in fact, if you remember, if, if you remember what we just read, there's no mention of belief in this passage. Now that's really radical. The first two miracles all ended with belief. There's no mention of faith in this passage. In fact, this is the first miracle where there's a negative reaction, a hostile reaction. Now, this is further confirmed by the fact that during it's during a Jewish feast in Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Well, it should cause us to remember John 2. Turn your Bibles to John 2, 23 through 25. Uh, Jesus performing signs uh, in Jerusalem during a feast doesn't always turn out well. Okay, look at John chapter 2, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, the Passover feast, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Remember, last week we called this unbelieving believing. All right? They have signed faith. They don't have saving faith. And when Jesus says he doesn't entrust himself, it's the same word for belief. In other words, Jesus doesn't believe in people that don't really believe in him. John wants us to remember that. He also wants us to remember what happened the last time Jesus was in Galilee. Look, uh, turn back to John 4, 43 through 45. John 4, uh, 43 through 45, because these Galileans had been at the feast. And here's what they did. John 4, 43 through 45. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having what? Seen the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Remember last week we called this the unwelcoming welcome. Oh, Jesus, we love you for who, for what you do, but not for who you are. We're just interested in the signs. We're interested in the show. So right here, look at verse 1 now again, chapter 5, verse 1. This doesn't bode well, okay? So you're supposed to have in your mind unbelieving belief, and you're supposed to have in your mind an unwelcoming Welcome. The, the Galileans failed to give Jesus the honor he was due as the sovereign Savior of the world like the Samaritans had done. So this is when this has occurred. Now, where is it taking place? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 answers that question. 
Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Now, archaeology has uh, shown us, and we'll uh, take a look at this, archaeology has found this place. Now, this, this is not the, this is a model, okay? So this is a, a scale model. And the first thing that you uh, notice here is look how big it is. And uh, there's the water. So we're not talking like a little puddle. You know, we're not talking like a swimming pool. We're talking about a big area that was fed by live springs. Go to, the, or actually, I guess I can do that. Um, now, this gives you the setting of where it's at. So the thing I want you to see on this is look how big a space that is in relation to the walls and everything. So in a moment, we're going to see there's a multitude of sick people there. Let me tell you, that there was a, a, there was a multitude of people there, all right? Multitude massed in there, and the water would have been in here. And these are the five porticos. They counted the four sides of the whole area, and then the fifth one going across. But here's what I want you to see is the position of it. Notice, this is the fortress of the Romans who were in charge. And this overlooked, literally, physically, and powerfully, the temple of the Jews. Okay, so the Romans were there to say, we're in charge, and the Jewish leaders were to say, there to say, no, we're in charge, even though we're under you. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus is going to slip away in this crowd, because if he starts having a healing, uh, a, a, a puts on a, a, a healing... Um, a healing service. Can you imagine? People are going to pour into the temple. They're going to pour out of the temple. Uh, the Jewish leaders are going to go bananas, which means these guys are going to do what? What are the Romans going to do? Just sit and watch from the wall? They're going to confire. I mean, so it would just be a, a, a riot. And so you just see uh, the area, and you can see where Jesus was, and you see the the intimidation so you even see where the the crucifixion took place so you kind of see the area all right enough on that now the name bethesda may have meant house of mercy but the same hebrew word could mean shame or disgrace and that would make sense and the reason being because here's all these sick people in this place, and they would be considered unclean, disgraced, and shameful. So you have this place that has the potential to be a house of mercy, people needing mercy, and yes, it's a house of shame. It's a place of shame. It's a pool of disgrace or a pool of grace. I wonder who or what is going to make the difference. Now, who is there? Well, in those porticos that I showed you, Look at verse 3 and 5. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Disabled people. A man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. Now, this is a huge part of the background. In a place of so many diseased and disabled people, a multitude, why didn't Jesus just heal them all and have a healing service? Well, I gave you part of the answer just by the location. Instead, he's going to just freely choose one single man out of that multitude. A man who we will see was disabled and had no hope of being healed. Now, why were all the sick people gathered there? There's the question that we need to ask. The pool had a reputation 
of having healing power due to either the springs, you know, some uh, scholars think the springs that fed those pools were the spa, you know, like Excelsior Springs, you know, those healing, healing pools. And so occasionally they would bubble up and when they did, hey, the healing properties are there, let's jump in or at least thrown in or carried to it. Others thought it was a place of miraculous healings where uh, the, an angel of the Lord literally stirred the water and enabled the first one in to be healed. Now, that just alone sounds a little weird to me. doesn't quite sound like the miracles in the New Testament, does it? Okay. Uh, look at verse 7. Verse 7 is in the original text, and here's what it says. The sick, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. That leaves the issue open. Is this a myth, or is it really a place of miracles? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the Messiah is there, and the Messiah is the one who does miracles. So the man was unable to benefit from the, the, the healing properties of this pool. Now, what happened to verse 4? We have to deal with that. What happened to verse 4? Uh, how many of you have that in brackets in your Bible? How many have that in brackets? Okay. How many have it? It's not even in there at all. It's just in the footnotes. Okay. So, okay. so you see that there's, an, uh, there's a problem with the text here. Not a problem with the Bible, a problem with the text. Now, most newer translations have this in brackets or in marginal notes. Why? Because more than likely this was added by a scribe who was copying the text to explain verse 7. So you have this verse 7, you have this multitude of people, and this guy says, i got to get down there when the water stirred in order to be healed. And it begs the question, why? Why do you need to get down there? Why are all these lame, blind, sick, paralyzed people gathered there? Well, when guys were studying the Bible, sometimes they would create a Ryrie study Bible, a MacArthur study Bible, or a scribal study Bible. And they would write in the side here, this is why people gathered here, or this is our best guess, or this is what we think, or this is what legend has it. And so they would write it in the margin, and over time, as other people would copy it, eventually it would get into the text, and pretty soon you would get a copy of the Bible and would have this inserted not in the Bible study notes, but actually in the text. You know, people sometimes think that about study Bibles. You do need to understand all study Bibles have a line. Everything below the line is not Scripture, and it's written by men. Everything above the line, that's the Word of God. And sometimes we can forget the difference. Well, sometimes the scribes did the same thing. Now, that raises a question. Did this happen a lot? And how do we know when it happened, right? So let me give you some reasons why... Uh, this does not make your Bible unreliable or untrustworthy. First of all, it doesn't make the Bible unreliable or untrustworthy. This didn't happen very often. There's only about two to three places in the Bible. In fact, two of them are in the Gospel of John. Uh, the woman who was taken in adultery, that whole chapter, John 8, is more than likely not in the text. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, we can see when it happens and we often know why it happened. The Bible, and here's why. The Bible is the most well-documented ancient text on the entire planet. No one's even close. 
Nothing. Homer's Iliad, nothing is even close. The Bible has nearly 6,000 manuscript copies or fragments of copies. That's more than any other ancient document. So if we're going to say, hey, hey, there's copies and some of them don't agree, we can't take the Bible, then you can't take any ancient document. You can't take any ancient document as reliable. And by having so many copies, you can compare one copy to another copy, and you can say, look, the majority don't have this. And look, this kind of entered in in the copies that are in this part of the world. This must have been added at a later time because these copies are later than the other copies that don't have it. So you see, they, we have so much evidence for the Bible that we can see when things creep in, it doesn't happen often, and it never affects a vital doctrine of the Bible. You can have full confidence. In fact, we have more of the Word of God. You know, we have so much, we know that some of it, you know, has been, is extra. So, what you have there is reliable and it's true. Um, and here, the evidence suggests that verse 4 does not belong in the original inspired writing by John, was added later by a cop copyist to explain what was going on in verse 7. Because just like us, when we study the Bible, we hate it when God doesn't answer our questions, right? And then what we start doing? Well, we start providing answers. And sadly, uh, copyists were just like us, and so sometimes they wanted to provide those answers, and it would creep into the text. So, was the stirring by an angel? Well, first of all, that's not in the text. So, was this a myth or a miracle? Was it just healing properties? We don't know. What we do know is what God wants us to know. The Messiah was there, the Son of God, and He's the one that performs miracles, not rippling water. All right? Okay, so, let's take a look at it. Uh, with that background in mind, let's see the miracle unfold. We need a miracle when we lack the ability to save ourselves or live holy before God. So the miracle begins in verse 6 with a question. Kind of an obvious question. Do you want to be made well? Now, I just have to insert, see, if I was a scribal guy, I'd add, duh, right? I put duh on the side, and then that would get in the text eventually, and they'd say, some idiot scribe added this, that, that, no, no, no. Do you want to be well? Now, this is radical, because there in verse uh, 6, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, this is God, this is Jesus being God. No one told him this information. Take comfort today. We live in a planet of over 7 billion people, and Jesus knows each one of us individually. And he knows our disabilities, he knows our infirmities, and he knows our hang-ups. Jesus knew that this man had been there a long time in that condition. So he says to him, do you wish to get well? Now, this is the first time Jesus initiates a miracle in the Gospel of John. Who initiated the first miracle? Water into wine. His mom, yes. And who initiated the miracle of the uh, royal official son? 
the royal official. He came and he came all the way from uh, Capernaum and he demanded that. Here, Jesus initiates the, the, the first miracle in the Gospel of John and it shows his compassion, his mercy, and his grace. And it shows that it's getting to be time in his ministry of confronting the Jewish leaders. Jesus knows where he's at. He knows what's going to happen in this. He's showing compassion, and he's gearing up for confrontation. Now, why did Jesus pick this disabled man, and why did he ask him this rather obvious question? This is good Bible study. You've got to ask questions like this. Now, here's the answer. The reason he picked this man and didn't heal the multitude is Jesus is not in the business of healing people, but bringing holiness to all people. Jesus is not in, he didn't come to be in the healing business. He came in the business of bringing holiness to all people. That's why he just healed one man out of a whole multitude. If he was here to heal everybody, if this was the age and the time when God was going to heal everyone, well, there he had it, man. He had the place. He could have put the show on, and boy, it would have been, you know, fabulous. He wasn't there to heal every physical disease at this time, but he was there for doing the work of bringing holiness to all people. See, he was there to meet our real disability. And our real disability is not what our sickness points it's what our sickness points to. Our greater problem is not cancer. It's not physical disabilities. It's not going blind. It's that we're spiritually blind. It's not that we're physically disabled. It's that we're spiritually disabled. It's, it, that's the real problem. And that's the problem that Jesus came to deal with. And that's why he immediately slipped away after the healing. He didn't want people to believe on him for what he did. What do we call that in this series? What kind of faith is that? Sign faith. He wanted people to believe on him for who he was, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when you believe on Jesus for that, what kind of faith do we call that? Saving faith. Saving faith. This is why he sought the healed man out later in the temple. And he warned him to stop sin. Stop sinning. And I think the sin he was talking about was unbelief. This guy never manifests belief. It never says he believes. Jesus just says, get up, and the guy gets up, and he's healed. And so Jesus tracks him down and says, look, you've gotten the sign, but I want you to believe on me for the real disablement that you have, the depravity of your sin and your inability to live a life pleasing to me. You see, ultimately, the reason Jesus picked this man out of the many was due to his free grace and pure mercy. Here's the reality. Nobody in that multitude deserved to be healed. Are you with me? None of them. And you know why? Because the sickness was due to the fact that all of us are Adam's grandkids, and Adam was a sinner, and we're a sinner, and disease in general is a result of Adam's sin in the fall. And all getting sick just proves that we're sinners and we don't deserve anything. Are you with me? And some sin, and I think in this case, this man's sin, some sin or some sickness is due to sin, our own sin. So we all get sick. We're all dying. I hate to tell you this, but we're all dying, right? 
And we're all sick, really. We're all dying. But that's due to Adam's sin in general. But some of us get sick and can get sick as judgment from God for our particular sin. And in this case, I think that might have happened. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here's the deal. Jesus was being merciful to heal one man to show all men that he can perform the greatest miracle of all. And the greatest miracle of all is healing us of our disability of living for God due to our sin. Jesus knew the need of each person at that pool. And he knew that the greatest need was not physical sight, physical healing. It was spiritual sight and spiritual healing. So why does Jesus ask the man, this rather obvious question, do you want to be made well? Yeah, look where I'm at. Look at my condition. What do you think I'm here for? The reason was Jesus wanted the man to think about his greater need and the greater miracle of being healed of the disability of his depravity. The disability of his depravity. He wanted him to think of the significance of sickness and how it points to there's something wrong with this world and there's something wrong with me and no one can fix it and I can't fix this. You see, Jesus wanted him to become aware of his spiritual disability and to see that the primary source of his disability was his depravity. You're a sinner. That's what you need to see. And he wanted him to see that the paralyzing force of his disability was his own inability. He gets the man to start thinking about how he's unable and how there's no man that can carry me. Hey, guess what? Once you become aware that you're really and that I'm really a sinner, we realize, you know what? I can't pull this off and there's no one else that can help me to pull this off. He wanted him to see that the persistent course of his spiritual disability would land him in eternity under God's eternal wrath. That's why he catches him later and says, look, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you than 38 years of physical disability. You're going to have an eternity of separation from God under the wrath of God if you don't repent and see me for who I really am. So that's why he asked the question. Now, why didn't the disabled man answer the question or ask Jesus to carry him. Look at verse 7. This is interesting too. So Jesus asks this obvious question, but guess what? The man doesn't give him an obvious answer. Okay? Look at what he says, verse 7. The sick man, the sick man answered him, Sir, or Lord, or Master, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, apparently dragging himself, crawling, another steps down before me. Now, did this man want to get well physically? Did he? Yeah, he did. Obviously he did. But notice, the man never came right out and answered the question, right? Instead, he shifted blame away from himself and kind of put the blame on others. I have no man to carry me. Okay? And it's interesting, this was allowed on the Sabbath. You could carry a man who was disabled. That was not against the Jewish uh, Pharisees and their man-made laws about the Sabbath. But he says, look, I have no one to carry me, and I'm not able to get there fast enough myself. The disabled man never answered the question in the affirmative. I think that's important. 
and the disabled man never asked Jesus to carry him to the pool. Okay? So he kind of just always pushes everything away, and the responsibility is pushed on others. Now, you know, hey, do you want to be made well? You know, you ought to say, yeah, sit with me, hang out till we see the water rippling, and then baby, carry me. Would you do that? Because I'm serious. I'm here. I want to be made well. Thanks for asking. But he doesn't say any of those things. I think the man knew that in his particular case, his physical disability was due to his own sin. And Jesus was trying to make him aware of his greater need, forgiveness and a new heart. Jesus was probing deeper into the man's heart to reveal a greater miracle, the miracle of salvation and a creation of a new heart. Now, here's where it gets interesting and full of grace. In spite of the man's physical disability and and spiritual inability to take responsibility for his sin, Jesus gives him the most amazing command. So let's look at that, the command. And it's real simple. I mean, the simplicity of these miracles are amazing. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk immediately. I mean, the man doesn't respond. He doesn't have to believe. Jesus speaks and it happens. Immediately, the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, notice how he takes the initiative. He reached the man out uh, or he sought the man out, reached the man out. He sought the man out and then he just spoke and said, you know, you know, you never really answered my question. You never asked me to do anything for you, but guess what? Get up. And the moment Jesus said, get up, he was healed. And the moment he was healed, he could pick up his pallet and he could walk. Now, Jesus is powerfully showing the man, it's not about someone carrying you physically. It's not about what you can do for yourself physically. It's about me and my spoken word. Look at who I am. Look at who is talking to you. I just speak. And your total physical situation is reversed. Just think what I could do with your spiritual life. Get up. He's made whole. Pick up. He picks up. Walk. He walks. That's the power of God's word. Now, you would think there would be a praise service that would break out, but instead, conflict results. Let's look at the next point. The conflict happens in 9 through 13, and the conflict is all because of the day that it happened and what Jesus commanded the man to do. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Look at verses nine, the end of verse 9, and let's read again through verse 13. Now, it was on the Sabbath of, on that day, So the Jews were saying to him, who was cured, cured, and that's a Greek word for it that we get therapeutic from. I mean, this guy's he's fully physically healed. It is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now you gotta be cracking up right now. You talk about missing it. You do you talk about they have seen they know they don't deny that a sign has happened. But they miss the significance. It is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Because if you carried your pallet from one place to another, that was work. 
according to their man-made rules. Now, you could carry a disabled man. That wasn't work. But if the disabled man gets healed and picks up his mat, now you have broken our man-made rules. Talk about missing the point. But he answered them. Now, look at, look at what he does. Okay, so in verse 10, the Jewish leaders are more concerned about keeping their man-made laws than seeing the significance of the sign. They have no desire to believe in miracles or trust in Jesus. That's a first that we've seen so far. You don't want to be the Jewish leaders. They not only don't have saving faith, they don't even want to have sign faith. They have a satanic faith that focuses on Sabbath rules and works in order to save themselves. The Jewish leaders are not they they, they are they're all about keeping rules rather than seeking and finding their Messiah. I mean, what what should they have done? What should they have done when they see this guy and they know he's been healed? What should they have done? Rejoice, praise God, and what? What would be the obvious question? Who healed you? This is the work of our Messiah. He makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. We have studied Isaiah. We are waiting for this. Where is he? Great for you. We're excited, but this is what we've been waiting for. It's not what they're waiting for. Now look at verse 11. The healed man's not that much better than the Jewish leaders. The healed man says, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. So again, he admits that he has been made well. He's standing. He's up. But notice what they keep repeating is Jesus' command after he had healed him. Pick up your pallet. They're focused on the breaking and keeping of man-made rules. That's the whole focus. They keep saying, who told you to pick up your pallet and walk? Who told you to pick up? He told me to pick up my pallet and walk. You know what the heel man's doing? We call it throwing someone under the bus. Who's he throwing under the bus? Jesus. What did Jesus just do for him? Healed him. But see, he's all about him. And it's all about Hey, I don't want to get in trouble with the religious leaders. I don't want to get in trouble with human authority. I don't want to get in trouble with these guys. So I'm going to throw the guy. I don't even know his name. He doesn't even know who Jesus is yet. And he says, but I'm going to throw him under the bus. Don't get on me. He told me to break the Sabbath. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. You see why he's slipping away? Because he's performing a sign for the Jews and for the people of God and for the Jewish leaders, but he's not yet ready for a full-blown confrontation. And so he slips away. Now, keep looking at it. Both the man and the Jewish leaders are missing the significance of the sign. But look at verse 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you? <laughs> look at it. The Bible is just, isn't it great? Study your Bible. You know, they don't say, who is the man that healed you? He must be the Messiah. What they say is, who is the man who told you to break the Sabbath? Who told you to pick up that mat and walk? Forget the fact that you're a paralyzed invalid. 
Forget the fact that you're fully healed and only God could do such things. Who told you to break the Sabbath? That's what's important. That's what's important. They're obsessed with this. And then notice verse 13. The healed man had no idea, because, but Jesus doesn't leave him in the dark very long. And so we come to verse 14 and the warning. So Jesus finds the man in the temple and says to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore. And he says it in a way where he says, You're sinning. Stop it. Or, some, or so that nothing worse may befall you. So let's look at verses 14 through 16. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away. And look, what's he do? Look at verse 15. What's he do? He tattled on him, Jim. He tattled on him. He went and he told the Jews... There's that Sabbath breaker. Get off my back. Ain't my fault. I can walk. But why don't you go take care of that Sabbath breaker? It was him. He went and he said it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So what's Jesus doing here? This is kind of a bizarre miracle, you know? First, he just initiates it. Then he comes back, confronts the guys, and says, Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. So what's he doing here? Here's what he's doing. He's basically saying, I have healed you to make you holy. The sign is not the important thing. The healing is of you physically is not an important thing. I healed you physically so that I could make you holy spiritually. It's not your health that I'm concerned about. It's your holiness that I am concerned about. The sign, the miracle, was just an indication to you as a sinner, you need to repent and believe in me, or worse things will happen to you. Eternal judgment. You see, some people read this miracle, and they make the mistake of thinking that in making someone physically healing someone, you're spiritually saving them at the same time. And that's not the case in the book of John. That's simply not the case. Some people get healing, but they don't get forgiven. Some people get forgiven, and then they get healed. Some people get healed, and then they get forgiven. But just because you had a miracle of healing doesn't mean you're born again. It goes back to last week's lesson, right? Hey, last week and this week, these lessons as a pastor... And for all of us as Christ followers, it's really brought to me the awareness that when we get a report of cancer, when we get a report of, of, of some dis, uh, disabling disease, it's just real easy to want a sign from God. It's real easy to want a miracle and not the man who does the miracles. And the reality is we may pray for healing and someone may get physically healed, but they're still spiritually lost. And so when we pray for people, pray for physical things, and we, we naturally do that. What we don't naturally do is say, Lord, whether they get healed or not, I pray for their holiness. I pray for their relationship with you. I want them to know you through this. I want to know you through this. Amen? So when we pray for people, 
And we've got some people in our church right now that have some cancer uh, uh, diagnosis, surgery, some things are going on. But let me tell you, after these last two weeks, as much as I'm praying for physical healing, I'm praying for a spiritual miracle of salvation, of really knowing that, you know what, God, if, you, if I'm one of the multitude you don't heal of cancer this week, I want to know that spiritually I'm right with you. I am right with you. Because there's coming a day when there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And that's the greater healing. The greater healing is a glorified body where there's no more disease, no more death. And we're living in the presence of the risen, glorified, returned king. And we are in his midst. Isn't that cool? And that's what he wants this guy to experience. He says, turn from your sin to me as your sovereign Savior. Now, how does the healed man respond? This is the saddest thing. This is how some people respond. Look at verse 15. He goes away. Jesus says these powerful words to him. And he walks away. He doesn't say, thank you. He doesn't say, hey, if you did it for this physically... And you're talking about my sin. Maybe you could do something about my sin and my spiritual disability. And worse than that, he goes to the Jewish leaders and he rats Jesus out to them. How do the Jewish leaders respond? They begin to persecute Jesus to the point of wanting to kill him. So what's the significance? Look at verses 17 and 18. The significance is this. Jesus says, my father is working until now. And I myself am working. He basically blows off their man-made Sabbath rules and says, Look, I am working on the Sabbath because my Father is working on the Sabbath. And oh, by the way, I and my Father are one. I am God. And I am here not to keep your man-made rules, but to fulfill God's purpose for the Sabbath. Isn't that cool? That's just powerful stuff. Apparently, the Jewish leaders went and sought Jesus out in the temple. They confronted him for the next two verses because the next two verses give Jesus' response to their attacks. And in doing so, he gives us the significance of the third sign. Look at verses 17 and 18. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, what was Jesus claiming about himself and his ministry? He was simply saying this, Jesus was doing the work of God. He was doing the work of God. His message, his ministry, the miracles, it was God's work. And Jesus was doing the work of God because he was God. That's the point. So, how do we overcome the greatest disability? Now, this was more of a teaching, this was more of an explanation lesson. Because if you don't understand the background, you don't get this miracle. Now, here's the application for us. Seek to be made holy by saving faith in Jesus as your sovereign Savior, and then start sinning less and obeying more. Out of gratitude for what God has done, the greatest miracle of all, healing your spiritual disability, you have been enabled to live holy. So stop sinning and start serving. Start living for Him. Get rid of the porn. Get rid of the the earthly priorities. Get rid of whatever is disabling you. 
Because if you know Jesus, you've been set free. Start sinning less and obeying more. Here's how you do it. Let Jesus convict you of your own spiritual disability. You see, we need God to really convict us that I can't do this without Him. We need to see the primary source of the reason I don't please God is because I am a sinner through and through. We need to see the paralyzing force of our spiritual disability. Look, God, I can't live holy because I can't, I, I can't do it and no man can enable me to do it. Only you can do it. And God, I want to live holy because if I stay on this course and if I keep living in a way that is full of sin and in rebellion to you, all I'm indicating is I'm headed for final judgment and it's not going to be good. So let Jesus convict you of that. But secondly, let Jesus do for you what you're unable to do for yourself. Give your, put your faith in this, this, this one who with just the spoken word of the gospel can set you spiritually free. Take God at his word in the gospel. The judge died for the guilty. The innocent one paid the punishment for the guilty. And he rose from the dead, and with just the spoken word, he can take us from darkness to light, from rebellion to righteousness. It's amazing. And here's what you do finally. Give Jesus the honor he deserves by doing what he saved you to do. You know what the beautiful, if you read the rest of John 5, I really encourage you, read the rest of John 5, because Jesus really teaches on the significance of this miracle. You know that word for get up? Look at verse 8. See that word for get up? It's the same word in verse 21 where he says, for just as the Father raises the dead. This is what's cool. When he said, get up, one day after we die, if we're believers, actually if we're believers and if we're unbelievers, Jesus is going to say what? Get up! And you know what? Everybody's going to get up. Everybody's going to get up. And some are going to get up to a resurrection of righteousness because they put saving faith in Jesus. And some are going to get up to eternal judgment by the same Jesus. You know what? My heart goes out to this disabled man. We don't know. We don't know where he's at today. And in that getting up day, I don't know if he ever had saving faith. But here's what I do know. You and I can make that decision this morning. Amen? You say, but you know what? I do have saving faith in him. Then I say to you what our Lord and Savior said to that man. Stop sinning or something worse will happen. The good news is our salvation is secure, but it's secure to live holy, not to remain in sin. Wow. Powerful stuff. Let's pray. Father, we come. Uh, this is sobering stuff. It, it's exciting stuff. It's encouraging, but it's also sobering. Lord, we all struggle. We're all tempted. This past week, we've all sinned. Believers, unbelievers alike. But Father, we don't have to sin. That's the difference between us and an unbeliever. We have been enabled we have been healed of our spiritual disability due to sin. We can say this week, I will sin less. Not sinless, but I will sin less and I will serve you 
more in obedience. I will live out the holiness for which you have provided. What a miracle. What does the world need? They need to see us living in a way that's different because we met the final judge, the ultimate life giver. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.